All right. Hello, everybody. We are live. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, joining me today on this very sunny day. We have a plethora of readers and fellow authors with us to talk about the curse of the mysteries. How much we enjoyed this book. Yep. Everyone show up your copy if you got it. Um, how much we enjoyed this book. How much we've enjoyed Janie's um, as a writer. And we are here to talk about everything under the sun into this series. If you, if you're, because going forward, there's going to be plenty of read-alongs and plenty of hype around this series. And before jumping into those read-alongs, we wanted, I wanted to come on board with a bunch of my fellow bloggers, YouTubers, authors as well, to give a better understanding of what to expect jumping into this series. Because I feel like there's some, there might be some miscommunication around it, and we have Janie herself here to walk us through all of the um, kind of muddy waters and to clear clear the air into what this series entails. So today I am joined by Poe. I am joined by Karen Lowe, fantasy and sci-fi author. I am joined by fantasy author Tark Mark Timoney, and I am joined by Matt from Hobbit Hole Books out there in London. And Jenny herself, thank you all so much for coming on board. This has been quite an undertaking, but I feel like this is going to be a fun, fun day. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. So before we jump into the group discussions, I just wanted to give, just do a brief reading from The Curse of the Mysteries. This is actually the prologue. I feel like this gives a good base understanding for what to expect jumping into the series and what... Um, to, to look forward to. So let me pull it up here. It's just a page, so just bear with me here. <clears throat> the Wars of Light and Shadow were fought during the Third Age of Athera, the most troubled and strife-filled era recorded in all of history. At that time, Arathon, called Master of Shadows, battled the Lord of Light through five centuries of bloody and bitter conflict. If the canons of the religion founded during that period are reliable, the Lord of Light was uh, divinity incarnate, and the master of shadows, a servant of evil, spinner of dark powers, dark powers. Temple archives attest with grandiloquent force to be the sole arbiters of truth. Yet contrary evidence supports a claim that the master was unjustly aligned with evil. Fragments of manuscripts sur survive, which expose the, the entire religion of light as fraud and award Arathon the attributes of saint and mystic indeed. Because the factual account lay hopelessly entangled, between legend and theology, sages in the seventh age meditated upon the ancient past and called through visions the events as they happened. Contrary to all expectations, the conflict did not begin on the council stair of Atara or even the soil of Athera itself. Instead, the vision started upon the white oceans of the splinter world, Dashin Ilor. This is the chronicle of the sages recovered. Let each who reads determine the good and evil for himself. So... Why don't we go around around the horn, so to speak? Say how you say how you came to the Wars of Light and Shadow, Curse of the Mysteries, and what was your takeaway from the, the story as a whole? Um, Matt, since you're the newest one, why don't we start with you? Awesome. Um, so I guess probably the first time I heard about this series was probably a couple of years ago. Saw a couple of Reddit posts, and it hit my interest. Put it on my uh, TBR. And then um, it was actually recently I'd seen a few uh, booktubers, some of my fellow booktubers were intending to pick it up. I think Patrick Leo and uh, Dr. Philip Chase 
they're looking to pick it up. So I thought, oh, well, I'll pick it up and, and read it. I got it for Christmas. And I started reading it probably about a month ago. It took me about a month to get through it. It's quite a uh, big book, but it just blew me away, honestly. It, it was just, um, it's, it's really hard to describe the experience. It, it was it was completely unexpected, um, but it, it's, it's, you sort of go in expecting that sort of typical fantasy world and you come out with just this, explosion of creativity that Jani has written and and it's, it's actually really hard to de- describe it. I think you go in with certain expectations but you you gotta just kind of uh, let Jani take you along as the reader and and your expectations will kind of um, grow and change as the book goes along and you discover more and the ending was honestly the most beautiful ending I've ever read in a book. Um, and it was a really, really beautiful reading experience and one of my favourite books of the, the year and, and of all time. So, yeah, it's fantastic. Lovely. Karen, you're also the newbie reader. Why don't we get your opinions on this? Um, well, I, I've known Janie's work through her art from uh, before I was even published and being familiar with her work that way. And um, once I was published and we got to talking, I sought out her her novels and... Um, I picked up two, these were the, this was uh, one of two um, in that series that was available in the physical bookstore. Um, And so I picked them up and I didn't know really, I didn't spoil myself going into it. I I don't like doing that. So I was like, okay, it's an epic fantasy. I haven't read one of these in a long time. Started reading it and was just so compelled by the language. Like I can't turn off my writer brain when I read. So it's, it's part of the experience for me is is enjoying um, what I'm seeing the other writer is doing as well as enjoying the story. So being able to be engaged on multiple levels, reading a book like this was such a joy to me. And the language really blew me over. I, I love the fact that it was a slow, like you, you, you sink into it. Um, and there, there aren't many books, um that i find that are like that that kind of compel you to do that and i love it when writers kind of unabashedly um you know draw the reader into a very specific kind of style and so i was really drawn by that by the imagery by the characters by the world and and just felt pulled along almost like a spell like it it, it felt like i was being pulled along in this kind of spell um through through this vast world with these large prophecies and these, um, it was really epic in that sense. And the prologue, you know, now that you uh, you read it just now, I'm after having read the whole book and going back and reading the prologue, you're, it resonates even more, which I also love that as you go along and if you flip back and kind of like uh, take a second look at things, it hits differently once you read through it. And so all of those layers and, and things like that are, are um, like candy to me, both as a writer and both as, and as both as a writer and a reader. So I was just enthralled by it, to be honest. That's lovely. Yep. That's a common theme of, of Janie. Everything going back to it would have take on a completely different light. And I don't know if I mentioned this in my intro, this first half part of the discussion is going to be spoiler free. So you don't have to worry if you haven't read Curse of the Mist Rates yet, or you haven't finished the book yet, it'll be spoiler free. 
uh, halfway through, we will have a section for spoilers. So we will give everyone the warning. So don't worry about that. Uh, Mark, why don't we go to you? Uh, you're a longtime fan. I know you're almost halfway through your reread. I think you're on to mm. Grand Conspiracy. So yeah. what 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 can you remember about Curse of the Misfits and why do you love it so much? Um, Curse of the Misfits. Well, I've I started reading um, Jenny's work in the 90s when I discovered um, the Empire trilogy um, that she co-wrote with Raymond Feist. Um, she then, after that trilogy, became a a go-to author for me. So I would pick up anything of hers I could find when it came out in Australia, um, which wasn't always um, <laughs> easy. Um, back in the 90s, um, we didn't have the access to Amazon like we do now and things like that. So sometimes getting um, imports from the US or even um, UK titles across to the Australian market um, widespread into us into australia wasn't um straightforward um so i was always on the lookout for anything that um Janny wrote and um curse of the mistrath came out it was a no-brainer for me i picked it up and one of the first things that you'll notice about the things that Janny writes is that they are presented as typical epic fantasy, but you quickly discover that there's nothing really typical about it. Um, and the prose is, for me, um, next level uh, use of language, um, getting lost and connected with the characters and what they go through. Um, and the the trauma that they get put through um, is was really um, well, it basically just carried me away, and I couldn't put it down. But it's also, as Karen said, there are different levels um, in the in the writing in the story, and subsequent reads you pick up more things that you missed the first time round. Especially for me, the first read was a little. Um, like, why isn't this a typical epic fantasy? I want the big epic fantasy. Why is it not another Lord of the Rings type book? And it ends up that it's the magic is that it's not another typical fantasy, right? And um, when I first was first reading it, my I had to do a little bit of a switch in my brain as to what my expectations were. And also, whenever I pick up one of Jenny's books, my brain kind of has to switch when I'm reading the prose because there is a very specific rhythm to how Jenny presents her ideas and her story on a page. And, you know, it's not for everybody. Not everybody connects with that type of writing. Um, I happen to absolutely adore it. I love it. Um, and there's so, again, the layers, um, the magic system, the world building, the history, um, and the glossary, which I <laughs> I actually happen to have read um, from start to finish in every single book. And I think that's something that I uh, recommend to all fans of her work to do, because you actually pick up a lot of stuff that you don't always get in the, in the, um, the text itself or not straight away. You get to see little insights with the use of um, the Paravian language um, and the meaning behind things that aren't readily apparent when you're first reading the book so um 
that was another one of the big things or big takeaways for me because it was the first time I'd come across a glossary that had um, uh, the Peravian language or the, the root um, origin of words that were used that all of a sudden just brought more colour and more story to the story. Um, I had never been a big uh, Tolkien fan. I appreciate what he did, but I've just never connected with his work. So I hadn't come across that type of stuff before that I was getting from Jenny's work. And it was just, I'd never looked back, basically. It's always a go-to <laughs> read for me. Yeah, I think we all have never looked back, or never have never looked back, or are going to never look back after yeah. after reading Jenny's works. Just that powerful and emotional. Uh, Poe, last but not least, we'll go we'll go to you. I know you've been a longtime fan of Jenny's uh, works. Uh, tell us about your interactions with the Christmas. Yeah, certainly, um, uh, it's not not actually that dissimilar from Mark's. Um, I I think I'm uh, I'd come across some of her books at the library before. Uh, Wars of Light and Shadow, so I was familiar with her writing. Um, I actually came a little atypically to War Wars, the series, um, though, because I started it with uh, the second book, which I won't go into because, you know, spoilers, um, but I found the second book in a grocery store one day, and I was just like, you know, the cover, which I uh, uh, a friend gifted me a paint, uh, print of the, the cover last year, um, so I have that on the wall, but you know, I was just grabbed by the cover, and I was like, "Oh, I know this author's name," and uh, picked it up. And uh, well, as we say, never looked back. Um, but except, you know, looked back to get cursed because I was like, "Wait, this is book two. Um, which is a thing that nowadays I'm like, "Oh my god, it's book two. Why, why don't they have book one?" But in this case, I was just like, you know, I, I picked it up. I was like, "All right, I'm gonna read it, see what happens." Um, and since she already had, you know. Uh, and I was familiar with her, you know, I was like, okay, this, you know, I don't doubt that I like this. And so I tried, um, tried it and then went back and found a copy of the, of the first book and, you know, um, read it and then reread ships. But, um, yeah, it's pretty much, um, honestly, Mark, Mark said it better than I could. Um, you know, it's just, I got into it and I was just like, you know, it's a go-to, you know, usually gets reread re at least once a year, probably, if not more. Um, every time a new book comes out, it's like, you know, read that, then go back and reread the whole series. <laughs> well, me being the new person on the block, so to speak, to, to read the series in one, in one go, I've never experienced the reread and the revelations that come with that. Of even like the little, even like the little sentence reading it the first time that you think, oh, this doesn't really mean anything. No, on the reread, you find out it means quite a bit. You just don't know it yet because your mind didn't catch it on the first time, and you didn't have all the background knowledge that goes into each subsequent book and what the ramifications of those coming back to the beginning really mean for you. So we've all said how our experiences with Curse, uh, Jenny. I know I'm bringing you back, but when you wrote that prologue and you wrote this book, and I realized the the difficulties you had in constructing Curse of the Misrates, because you need to figure out what to put into the book, what to leave out, what hints to give the the readers, what 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 is said, but also what isn't said between some characters. Um, when when you're constructing that pro that prologue and how it how it comes across to a reader. 
what are you hoping the reader takes away? And what would you say is some of the biggest um, challenges that you've seen some readers are coming into your work that uh, makes them a little like um, trepidatious about of reading the, the series? It's not a linear story in that I don't sit there and give you all the details in a way that you can assimilate like young character growing up and you see the world open up as young character growing up and it proceeds in a linear fashion that has a rising curve. This is more of a spiral where the story will loop back over itself and give you an additional perspective from a different height, a different depth, a different breadth, and it will change what your opinion was. So the prologue was supposed to warn you that what you thought you saw might not stick. But I guess there's a rap for fantasy prologues. People step over them and figure they're gonna be different than what this was, but really it's the bare bones of what I'm warning you is don't sit too hard on your assumptions because they're gonna bite you. So there was that. There was also the fact that I came at fantasy from a different perspective than many people. I did not read comics growing up. I did not read much fantasy or science fiction beyond fairy tales or what was available in your average school library, which back then often in a conservative type of school wasn't going to be apparent. So I read the library. I read historical fiction. I read mysteries. I read black authors. I read mainstream. I read everything, everything in the fiction section. I would go through probably eight or nine books a week. I would read with a flashlight. And when I encountered Tolkien at 14, 15 in there, blew the bottom out because I said, oh my God, this guy created an entire world. He didn't stick to anything traditional. He didn't stick to anything quote unquote real. He absolutely created everything from scratch. So I said, wow, that just blew the doors off of the possibilities of what could be done. <clears throat> so immediately I chased down more fantasy. I found Zelazny and I found Le Guin and I found Donaldson and I found it was a very small field back then. I found the Valentine fantasy series. And um, I came up with this idea of let's turn the crope on its head of who you think is the hero because he's only saying what you think you want to hear. And what if he isn't that? What if you needed to know both sides? What if there but for the grace of God you would have jumped to the wrong conclusions too. So I began with that theory. And then I said, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to create a world down to the roots. So I spent years creating the world that this was going to take place in because I wanted it to be that real. I wanted to create an experience that was so broad, so deep, and had such a high perspective that you wouldn't get from your own upbringing on this planet that I figured I better had fixed the underpinnings. And I knew because of the way things run on that world, which I won't spoil, it wasn't going to be a progression of technological development like this world, not at all. So I had to mix and match some things because things progressed at different paces for reasons that will come out as you read through the series. So I started a massive amount of research among which was war because I wanted it to be real. So I read books from about the Romans all the way forward to gunpowder when that started really changing how wars were fought. 
And just as I had finished that reading book after book after book and talking to war reenactors and people who were really in the know as to how this and this and that could combine and some really very detailed hands-on research as well, I stumbled across a docudrama of Culloden. Stark black and white, what happened when Bonnie Prince Charlie fought the British and how bad leadership, mistaken orders, terrible terrain, stupid decisions created the perfect storm of what amounted to a complete bloody slaughter. And nobody gave the order to charge. Nobody, everything kind of froze while gunfire just ripped these people to pieces. And I came out of that experience completely reeling because all of the poetry, all of the ballads, I was a big musician, a ballad singer, all of the poetic movies, all of the historical fiction that glorifies war is basically a lie. It's a complete lie. When you look at it recast in the light of what happened on that field that day, you go back and you look at all the major wars that went back to the Romans and you realize it was luck, it was a good commander, it was terrain, it was the perfect storm of bad decisions. Right did not make, might did not make right. History got written by the victor. And guess what? Our news, our history books, our national propaganda, our common myths that we hold about our cultures, they're wrong. They're just not, because if you take a different viewpoint, it's gonna look completely different. It's gonna change the landscape. And worst shocking of all was that fantasy was the biggest culprit. The big battle at the end always makes the golden age come back or the good peace guys always win or all the sacrifice was worth it. And I said, well, I really love classic fantasy. I don't wanna pan what's gone before because it's fabulous and it was great entertainment, but dang it, it just didn't think deep enough. So that forever changed the trajectory of this story. And I wanted to write that war is not a solution and that there are many, many angles. War is basically a failure of imagination when you get down to it. It could have been addressed. The problems could have been addressed creatively, imaginatively way ahead before you dug yourself in that hole where it came to killing fights. So that just reshaped the foundation, but it didn't change the push and the angle of trying to create an evolving perspective where we as human beings have to make our decisions from incomplete information all the time. And the older we get or the more experiences we have, if we don't shut down and decide we know everything, the day we say we know everything, we've screwed ourselves. Um, but that creative evolution, you have to make decisions and you have to take action. You can't live as an inert fungus and let things happen around you until you know everything because consciousness never knows everything. So this story is an effort to dissect what happens when critical thinking, the best critical thinking also falls short because you just don't have all the pieces. So the markers are gonna get moved. Yep, the markers definitely do get moved with each with each consecutive book. And I suggest I can even say with each subsequent arc. And I know a common question, um, a lot of people get fused with the arcs when uh, picking up Wars of Light and Shadow. Um, I know if Jen and I, we, we talked about this plenty of times, but 
Book one is arc one, two and three, or two, if you have the old hardcover for Ships of Mirror, is arc two. Uh, books four through eight are arc is arc three. Nine and ten are arc four. And then the f- finale, which is with the publisher right now, is the final in arc, arc five. Um, Janet, just quickly, I know we've talked about this before, but except for the new audience, um, can you just go into brief detail over the, the arcs, what they mean and what to kind of like expect with each uh, subsequent arc going forward? The first arc really honestly is the stage setter. And so when you read it, you may be shown things that you don't understand what they mean yet. So you were right. You people that pointed out, it didn't read like your standard classic epic fantasy because there's a landscape underneath the landscape that you're looking at, but you're limited to the character's point of view. And you're limited to what they don't know about the worldview, the world factions. So it's like what to put in, what to leave out. And the trick was, the slate of hand trick was to put everything in there so that when you come back from a different vantage, it's all there and you go, oh my gosh, look at this. It's a whole different story. Um, so. It's in many ways the driest book because so much is brand new and so much might look like one thing, but it's really another thing. And how to skate that fine line without telling you what the reveals are going to be as those characters grow into that world. The second book, there's a lot more room for humor. There's a lot more room for character interaction. There's a lot more room for seeing the scope of the world as the characters perceive it. So it's a more, um, it's easier to have a little more heart with that book because there was room for that. It wasn't this stark outline. Um, and it has its reveals because you get more invested in the story and the characters and you really come to understand that there is more to this, but you don't know it yet. And there are little hints and little pieces that just kind of drop in. So the second arc really is designed to immerse you and give you a few startling twists where you go, whoa, this isn't Kansas. This isn't what I thought. Arc three raises it to worldview where suddenly you're going to see where all the factions are coming from and everything you assumed in book one and two in the second arc isn't gonna apply anymore because you're suddenly gonna start to see the driving forces that these characters walked into and didn't understand at all. The fourth arc, is the one that stages for what I call the mysteries. And that's where you really begin to see the underpinnings of why this planet is different and why it is an interactive sort of an interface and why there are certain things that did not develop on this world the way you think that they should have, or in other words, we're not in Kansas anymore in arc four. And the fifth arc in the finale is where it all comes together. You see everything in full vivid color. You see it from about 12 different levels and also the elder powers which walk very very softly all through start to come forward and you begin to see the whole stage from the viewpoint and vantage of epochs so it's going to build to this tremendous it's not this is not a front-loaded series um it it drops its its hand, it shows its cards very slowly and each time that hand drops the markers will move and you need time to assimilate that So that should give you a rough idea. Each of those five arcs are a story within a story. And if you take them simply, they encompass a certain stage of the character's development. And at the end of the arc, those characters are gonna grow, change and pursue their goals in a different way. So there are many ways that those arcs are split and divided. 
So I was going to ask Janny, so was it always like planned that way from the start to split it into the arcs or was the um, decision to split books two and three, was that part of the factor in making those arc divisions or was it planned out you'd have five arcs from the beginning? It was always designed to be a story in five arcs. I actually have, the day I had the idea, a one-page, single-spaced manual typewriter outline, and it stuck pretty true to that. The second arc was written as one story, and what happened to that was each of the arcs and each of the stories has a sub-structure um, to it where it goes to a half point and a major twist will change the second half and converge everything together. So ships is actually the first half and that midpoint tipping point is the finish of ships. If you have the two volume set and the finale where it all converges is in Warhost. So if you read ships and you go, that's half a story, it is half a story. The problem that I had was that in Britain, they couldn't, they weren't doing stone bindings in Britain, they were glued and they were worried the book would rip in half. So they split the book so that it wouldn't tear in half. Now we all know when they're really motivated, they can make a big thick book, but they weren't motivated in this case. So it got split. In the US, I begged and pleaded to have it be one book. So the reviewers had a chance in the hardcover where they could sew the hardcover. So the reviewers would see the whole thing intact. And if you see the whole thing intact, actually the big whammy is at the finish in Warhost. It makes a difference in how you perceive it, but not terrible. Um, it doesn't cliffhang. It gives you a good pause point. When it came to the paperback, they were going to have the same problem. The book was going to rip in half. So because it had been split in, in Britain, it seemed easier to just let them do it with the paperback rather than have a shoddy product that tore in half when you were halfway through. So that's how Ships and Warhouse got divided. But if you happen to get the U.S. hardcover and you're doing a group read along, you're fine because there is a part one and a part two. That's the split point where the split division happened between Ships and Warhouse as separate volumes. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Yeah, that was really insightful. I have a, I have a nerdy uh, writer question. Just how do you keep the world? Uh, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's a silly question. Like, how do you keep all of these details um, straight over such a sprawling? a very in-depth series, but I really am curious, like just in broad strokes, um, like what your process is for that. Well, the process was don't publish anything for two decades. <laughs> so I spent two decades writing other things that were simpler because my career just wasn't ready to support this huge epic. And I wanted to have enough words under my belt published that I knew what I was doing so I wouldn't screw it up. So in between time, I was constantly working on it. And how did I keep it straight? Several different ways. Each book has a massive spreadsheet and it's on paper. Sorry, I don't do well with digital. It's on paper and it spreads out to a probably about three feet wide. And at the top, you see all of the various characters and which faction they're in. And going down the left-hand side, you have the time, the month, the year, and when you draw the graph between character and timeline, then I filled in each subchapter and chapter as they happen. So you can look down that character's arc and see everywhere in that book that that character did anything and wow. what it was and which chapter set it happened in. 
So you can pinpoint the volume that you need to go look at for exactly that scene. So I did it with spreadsheets that way. I kept um, a character notebook and anytime a character lived, died or got married or changed or had kids, all those details went in there. So if I needed to look up a character, it was at my fingertips. As far as the history goes, the history is so huge. It went on scraps of napkin, it went on pieces of graph paper, it went into notebooks, it went into, um, used to be able to buy divided notebooks that had like oak tag in between the pages. So I would set aside sections and just keep scrolling notes until that got too unwieldy. Then I actually took all of the scrawled notes and created a file system with file cards where I put the date on the file card and shoved it in, in chronological order. And what you quickly discover trying to do that is each various place on the map has its own local history. And you can't go through thousands and thousands, literally thousands of years to find all those pieces of local history. So you almost have to scroll on the back of when that town or settlement was created, what other dates to look at to see which periods of history to check. So you get the whole arc of that history complicating that is there were eras before this era where there were no humans on the planet at all. It was all different. It was really different back in those times. So the history split into eras and I've got a whole separate set of file cards for those eras. So I can go back 10, 20, 30,000 years and say, this is how this formed. So that's how deep I know it and how forward I know the future this story is just a tiny little kernel in the middle. And if that wasn't complicated enough, I'm not a linguist, okay? I'm not Tolkien, I am not a linguist. I did design a language, but it's a language of power. It actually shows how the energetic makeup of that word or that concept fits together and interlocks with the planetary system on which it developed. So there's that. So I have a massive section just on language and how the language is composed and how you can shade the meaning of what you're saying and how much power is there and which power is more is stronger than the other power based on the word construction. One word compared to another word, you can place it immediately in its own um, sort of energetic map. So yeah, I spent a lot of time. It's probably never going to get on the page, but it's there. That's no, amazing. Jenny, that's... That's the stuff that needs to go into the Walls of Light and Shadow Companion. Oh, well, <laughs> that I will, I will, I will buy. I would love it. I would just totally love it. There's a lot of artwork too, so the material exists, um, and there is a, a Wars of Light and Shadows wiki that is divided by volume, so you can use that wiki and not be spoiled. That was compiled by Brian Yuri, and he did a completely brilliant job. So, you know, there's the closest thing we've got to a companion just now multiple volumes i'll buy each one thank you he, yeah he he divided it by book so if you read if you read the wiki for the volume you're in you will not be spoiled by subsequent events and as for not being a linguist i think you do a really good job just yeah. from my opinion yeah um it's pretty spot on well because it also speaks to levels like yeah it, as you're saying it was constructed as a language of power but it uh, can and is in some cases in the, in the story utilized as 
everyday names or, or possibly not sayings, but um, certainly naming-wise, um, on, on a surface level, doesn't seem to affect or have any resonance anywhere else, but knowing you, it probably does. Um, so I, I think it works certainly from a reader's perspective on multiple levels. Well, yeah, when I said I wasn't a linguist, you know, I, of course, studied French in school and I doodled during Latin. I hated it. What I meant was I didn't go into the etymology of words. I didn't study languages in our societies on this planet. I didn't go into, you know, that's what I meant by Tolkien. Mm. He was a master linguist. I'm sure. not a linguist. Doesn't mean the conceptual underpinnings of that language don't work. It just means that I did not have that area of expertise and I did not try to imitate that without knowing what the heck I was about. Yeah. But at the same time, you do show, well, you do show the etymology of the, of the words in the glossary where you put a name and then do the breakdown to the root Peravian. So for, you know, the fantasy world building nerds, that's like massive etymology for us. It's great. It's amazing. I love it. <laughs> There's a lot more notes where that came from. It would, it would frankly probably blow too many people's fuses if they saw the pile of notes on that. I'm like, grabby hands, give me. So I was going to ask Jani is so I mean the way that the series is is that like you talk about it's like a spiral and it kind of uh, a lot of it is unexpected as a reader as you go along but also it's like meticulously planned but was there anything because uh, I know you planned this for like 20 years but as you went along was there anything that surprised you as a writer when you were writing it that you put in that wasn't planned from the beginning with, I mean spoiler free but yeah was there anything that, that sort of came as you were writing it you have to understand that the creative process is not linear you would start with an opening premise and then you it's just like problem solving in using your brain to do what your brain does best you start with an opening premise and you say the problem that I don't have the answer for is in the middle in this gray area. Here's where I land. This is where it ends up. So the original planning says, here's where the character starts. Here's where they end up or, and here are a couple of major stepping stones of what they're going to go through. But between that area is very gray. How are they going to get there? When you work with the creative mind, you don't use logic. When you do, you're going to lock because it isn't done with logic. It's done with intuitive leaps of the gap. Intuition literally is a leap of inspiration. So what you have is here's where I start. Here's where I want to end up. I don't know what's in between. Intuition provides that. You walk out over air on faith that your problem solving subconscious mind is going to reassemble reality in a way that's going to make perfect sense. It's going to hand you that gray area. It's like, oh, wow, cool, look at this. And then you end up where you plan to be. It's not linear, but it seems linear looking backwards. It's Logic is only part of editing, which is looking backwards at what you put on the page. You don't write with logic. You write with intuitive creativity, and that means logic does not apply. And if it doesn't surprise me as a writer, if it doesn't surprise the reader, it won't surprise the reader if it doesn't surprise me it's going to read very flat and boring. So that element, that spark of leaping that gap and discovering something on the way has to be there. And if it isn't there, I'm not going to write that scene until I have it. I will literally pause, 
and lie awake at night and use my insomnia and burn my candle at 15 ends and keep hammering at it until I get a way that I couldn't see coming. And if I can't amuse myself and be surprised, it never went on the page. That's wonderful, Jenny. And we, uh, we very much looking forward to all those, all those scenes that you pound the table for. Um, just a quick sidebar, everyone, because I know Karen is running low on time and she has to leave soon. But Karen, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and joining in the conversation. And you are a fan, fantasy and sci-fi author yourself. Both Jenny and I are big fans of yours. Why don't you just give a little bit of uh, insight for uh, the listeners and the people viewing to, to get into your work? Okay, before before that, though, I just wanted to kind of like pick up on what Janie just said. Like, I love hearing other creative people talk about their process. Um, I wish I could stay longer. <laughs> I hadn't realized I had a previous engagement um, uh, for today, but I loved hearing all of that. It's, it's so true that, um, and I guess unless you write yourself or you do something you're in some sort of creative endeavor yourself. You don't realize how much the unconscious plays into into your process, and it's it's very um, gratifying and and fun for me to listen to another writer talk about their process, and and it it there, it gives me a sense of community because writing is usually, especially when you write novels, it's quite a solitary uh, endeavor, and being able to connect other writers into readers and um, in, in any way is, is such a privilege. And I just, I, I wish I could stay longer. I love hearing Janny talk. I love, uh, I'd love to hear what her questions. So if you archive this, I'm gonna check back again. But anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I do, I do write. Uh, I have three science fiction novels, uh, a fantasy novel and like two dozen short stories. Um, I'm still writing, uh, working on a series of novellas um, that will hopefully become a novel. And that's why my mind is kind of blown at the sprawl of this series and like, you know, bow down to the sprawl of this series and just how coherent and cohesive it is and that the, just taking it on, I just have so much admiration for it. Um, and, and at the level that Janny, Janny works at, uh, story wise and, and language wise is just, is honestly kind of mind blowing. So I'm I'm a fan, and uh, if anyone wants to check out my work, sure you can follow me at uh, Twitter um, at Karen Lowe. But I'm, I'm I was here to 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 talk about Janie's work, and I'm just I'm just kind of like this just makes me even more um, blown away, honestly. Absolutely. Listen, Karen, <laughs> you have to read Karen's work because she was early in writing diversity. She totally doesn't flinch from the edges of very nasty abuse and what it does to people's minds. She's not afraid to dive to the deep depths. She's not afraid to write about difficult subjects. Her characters are engaging, they're enduring. You read them and you're not going to forget them. She writes and it just sears the experience into your mind. And I've admired her work for a long, long time and she should be way wider read than she is because of some of the territory she dared to turn before it was cool or kosher to even try. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I gotta get emotional, so I'm gonna duck out. Um, but um, it was great meeting everybody, even long distance. And hopefully when the world settles down, it'd be great if we all found ourselves at a convention sometime and we can hang out 
and maybe do this like literally in person that would that would be a blast that that's a that goal. would be amazing that yeah, would be incredible yeah. yes and anyone who's listening or watching um i i love interacting with readers um even if you don't read my books i just generally love interacting with readers hearing their thoughts so uh hit me up anytime um or on my website and thanks so much uh thank you Janny, always for for being just so cool um like a real a real uh a real like classy lady. I really appreciate that because you don't always find that in this in this industry. But I really appreciate. It. So on top of being a, a brilliant writer, she's a classy lady, and um, I'm I'm here as her one of her number one fans. <laughs> Thanks everybody, and um, I'll see you around then on the internet. And I'll if you're logging this or archiving this, please, I'm going to check it out. So thanks yep, so I'm, much, everybody. All right, take care. Take care, Karen. Thanks so much. Okay, so before we get into the um, spoiler part of the um, of the live broadcast, I just wanted to give one more quick question because um, I because I was not how prepared were you jumping into this series, knowing like thinking like in um, in hindsight, so to speak? Because I've been told by fans of the series that it has the depth and intensity and some of the grim moments of like a malazan and it layers upon layers upon layers, but it, you'll experience the highs and the lows and the ones who haven't gotten there yet, uh, Matt, you will definitely see that. But even after reading malazan and reading um, the master of white storm and uh, the, uh, the empire trilogy, I still wasn't a hundred percent prepared for what was coming, coming down the pike. It completely took me, back and I just was so absorbed in the world that I wanted to figure out everything about it. My reading experience, Jenny was on the other end, just she knew in the background what I was about to read and she stayed, stayed quiet. So I just wanted to know how prepared were you, was everyone here going into it and what can you share to any new readers coming, coming into this series? Uh, I guess Mark, we'll start with you. Um, well, like I said, I had, um, read Janny's work with, uh, the Empire Trilogy, and I'd also then gone to find anything else I could that had been written by her. So I had read the, um, Cycle of Fire and the Sorcerer's Legacy, possibly even Master of Whitestorm as well, I think. So they are really good introductions to Janny's work. Um, and I think they, um, hold some common themes. Like, I'm not saying that they're the same. They're not, um, it's totally different, but you get a real, um, um, a glimpse into the sorts of story that Janny will, um, uh, provide that it's never, um, quite what you expect or as straightforward um, as you might uh, expect from classical fantasy. Um, so going into um, Curse of the Miswraith, um, <laughs> I'd like to say I was prepared. I, was, I guess I wasn't really. Um, at that stage, my reading in terms of fantasy was still pretty narrow in scope and I had particular expectations of what a fantasy story should be like. Um, and on the surface level, 
it 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 presents it and yet it doesn't it it doesn't give you i guess hit all the same notes because it's not meant to um and it wasn't until i had read the um Ships of Merior and Warhost of Vastmark, and then gone back and done a whole reread because I think I reread the first, well, I say the, the first and second arc of the first three books as we had them in Australia um, about three times um, before uh, Fugitive Prince was released. And I specifically, sorry, we're doing spoilers at this part. <laughs> no, you're. Muted place. <laughs> Sorry, no spoilers yeah. yet. We'll get no to spoilers that yet. Okay, cool. That's cool. So, um, by itself, I, I found it a little. At first, I found it a little frustrating. Um, I loved the the language. I loved um, the depth of and the layers of the magic system because that's also another thing that's not um uh what you would expect to find in a traditional fantasy it's not clear cut um the law of the major balance gets spoken about um in curse of the mistwraith and kind of ties the hands of some characters um in different ways and that can be a little <laughs> a little frustrating it's like well why don't they just do this and like they can't because of this um so um curse became a um a book of really good language or use of language to me and poetry in some respects um i really connected with um arathon um i was always i am always team arathon <laughs> so there was like some frustration um with the mad prophet um dakar and his attitude um and it became just just um as i read the rest of the series um it just became a joyful ride for me um and even doing a reread now i still pick up stuff that either i've forgotten as the greater series grows or um, that I didn't notice the first time around. Um, so there's always something new to find for me. Um, and like I said, I read the glossary as well when I got to the end of it. And I basically went from start to finish through that. And I think I read, I've read every entry, um, possibly more than once. <laughs> and I referenced it while I was reading. I, I A lot of people don't, or don't like the idea of glossary or find them um, uh, confronting. But honestly, it, it's a really handy companion if you're coming into this and it's not quite what you expected or um, you're not used to the um, the the richness of Jani's prose um, or what she's presenting because you've not experienced it with other writers before. Um Having a look at the glossary as you're reading it, especially if you've got a physical copy, it's really handy. Um, not sure what else I can talk about without going into spoilers. <laughs> There's a section for spoilers. We'll, we'll hold, yeah. off on, hold off on that. Um, Paul, why don't we go to you? Uh. Uh, sure. Um, I wouldn't say I was really prepared for some of what would come later. Um, 
Uh, I do think, uh, as Mark touched on, that in some of her other other works, there is uh, uh, what's a good word for it that I'm thinking of here, um, like Cycle of Fire and uh, Master Whitestorm. There, there's there's bits that are very reminiscent. Um, I guess maybe test runs for you know, some of the stuff that comes later, but it's also um, like night and day, um, because I, I think I know the you know some of the stuff that you're, you're you're referencing without going into spoilers, place. But it's like the the comparison between what uh, oh, and I'll do a little spoiler for Cycle Fire, like uh, what one of the characters Jarek experiences um, there compared to you know stuff later in Wars of Light and Shadow. Yeah, it's it's there's yeah it's like what happens in Wars is like racked up, you know, they just turned, Jenny turned the dial up to 11. Um, and so when I got to those points, yeah, I, it's like, I was familiar with her writing, but I wasn't, um, they, they were just, uh, devastating and stunning and amazing. And yeah, I was not prepared. Agree. I don't know if you could ever hundred percent be prepared for this series, but, um, that's why we're here to walk you through those those uh, those mysterious parts. Matt, when we'll start start with you, what? How was your experience going into it? Yeah, I, I guess um, my experience was very interesting. I guess I took the baptism by fire, so to speak, because this is actually my first book that I read by Jani. Whereas for a lot of people, um, like you said, it's like Master of Whitestorm's entry point, or To Ride Hell's Chasm is one that a lot of booktubers reading recently. But I decided to go straight in with the big one because if you know me, I love uh, series, love big series, big books with big world building. And I think I was actually oddly prepared because we, because uh, I mean, I can only imagine what, how poor Mark must have felt when he was reading them when they came out in Australia, young, innocent Mark and not knowing what to expect. Um, whereas we now have this wealth of uh, readers that have read it. And um, actually I found it really helpful when I was going along, there was a Reddit read along recently. And um, I used those posts that people have put in and they, there's like chapter recaps. And um, the, I was reading through all the comments after I'd read all the chapters and that was really helpful to kind of read others thoughts and and see things from a different perspective um and actually you know I think there's a lot sort of made about the language and the um and sort of how verbose it can come across and poetic and it's really really beautiful and I loved it I loved the style and I, I think that maybe perhaps there's a little bit too much made of sort of it's got kind of a similar kind of stigma that Malazan has, that it's this really hard, difficult series to get into. And I think it's, there's almost like this mythos around that, this legend that it's just a book that you're going to have a difficult time with. Personally, I didn't find that. Um, I think it's one of those things that people say you've got to get used to. So I did sort of halfway through the book, I took a break and then came back to it a few weeks later and finished it off and I did have to sort of readjust after going back to a sort of um, a different sort of um, sort of prose because um, Janney's prose is very unique um, but I found that 
I didn't find it sort of difficult to understand or I think it's something that you've just got to attune your brain into the rhythms. And once you get into that rhythm, actually, it's just like reading any other book I found. Um, and I think I definitely have my expectations challenged. And at times there were there were times that without spoilers, I was thinking, why is this like this? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. I feel like I should get this more and I'm just not getting this this aspect. And and I was told by others that when I was reading along that I had to just wait and you'll see there's reasons for this. And actually, once you sort of get towards the climax of the book, you see, OK, this is why I was a little bit confused, why I was a little bit unsure what was going on with this particular aspect. And it's all kind of uh, brought to the front. And this is a really, really uh, fascinating experience. And I can't wait to re-experience it and, and watch my um, understanding grow as I come back to it. Yeah, <laughs> I think that um, one of the things that I noticed as well, certainly having read further in the series and gone back and regret too, is that nothing is one dimensional. Um, even like obviously in the magic system and the whole idea of resonance and um, causality and even different layers, uh, uh, energetic layers. Um, the things that you're seeing on the page that are happening are not surface level. Um, there's actually um, a lot more to it. Um, there's the psychology of characters um, and characterization. There's um, the things that you expect if you come to it from traditional fantasy's perspective that are being presented but don't quite mesh because there's not all, you're, you're not getting everything that you're seeing on the page is not all that's there. Um, and you kind of need to open, I think, um, just be a bit more open to um, understanding that um, uh, not everything is as straightforward as it might seem on the page. And so a lot of the stuff that's, um, it's not just what's said, but what's not said, I guess. Um, and also <laughs> there is a particular rhythm to Janny's writing, certainly in this series, that's not the norm in with other um, mainstream fantasy writers. And a lot of the audience that comes to these books, not all of them uh, are prepared to, to sit through and, you know, connect to that um, or change what they expect or the way that they're reading, the, the way they read a um, prose or, or um, a novel um, to sit and to let it change. Some of the people don't have time. Others want something slightly different. Um, and I think um, Janny was absolutely a tra trailblazer in that type of thing. Um, that only helped people like Steven Erickson later on. Um, but even then, um, the rhythm and prose of his writing is, again, not... I, this is no. <laughs> it's possibly a little bit more accessible to mainstream fantasy readers um, than you might see with um, Janny's. But read Cycle of Fire, have a look at um, Master of Whitestorm, um, even to Right Hell's Chasm. Um, they might be a little bit more accessible to what you're going to get um, when you make the leap into um, Wars of Light and Shadow. 
Yep. That's brilliantly said, Mark. Um, so before we jump into the spoiler section, we do have a giveaway to, to announce. So um, thank you so much for making us through this far. And I will read the question for, for everybody. So the rules are first person to um, US, in, U.S. only giveaway for the hardcover of Curse of the Mysteries. First person to DM me the correct answer will win our hardcover of the Curse of the Mysteries. If you are international... Yep, there, there it is. That is the cover. Uh, that is the copy. So, any international people, we also have a giveaway for you as well. Um, you, if you email me or DM me the correct answer to this question, we will send you an e-copy of the Gallant, which is the it's a novella. Uh, it's the first novella that you can read after Curse of the Misrates, and it goes over Varane, one of the very important but minor characters in um, Wars of Light and Shadow. Uh, Jenny will talk about that a little bit after uh, announced the question. So the question is, what was the release month of the original first edition of Curse of the Mysteries? You DM me the correct answer and you will be the lucky winner. So Jenny, quickly, uh, can you just give a brief overview of, of the, the Gallant just so everyone knows what we're talking about here? The Gallant is a novella. It takes a character that appears in Curse of the Mystery, but you really aren't going to see the depth to that character at all. It tells his backstory, and it takes place probably 600 years before the opening of Curse of the Mystery. It is recommended if you totally like to see where you're at and have your feet firmly rooted, and you don't want to wait for the arc system to unveil everything about some of the political setup in that world. It sort of shows a backsnap in history where things were not completely broken yet. They were just starting to deteriorate. So if you find yourself starting Curse of the Mistraith and you're lost and you just can't wait, it's a good opener. And it can even be read without reading anything in the main series. Um, it somewhat sort of stands alone. So, yeah. And I should add on your giveaway that um, there were two releases, one in the UK and one in the US, and one was the real first edition and one came after. They were not yep. simultaneous. <laughs> yep. So you email me the correct answer and we will get you that copy as soon as, as soon as possible. So now I think is the time to jump into the spoiler section of Curse of the Mysteries. For all those well, of you who there, Before you get there, I'd like to just throw a little bit in because you were all talking about the style. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to give you a little bit of a hint as to why I did what I did. And there's about three or four different reasons. One, you all mentioned the rhythm to the style. This is a very physics and sound oriented story. Resonance carries a huge um, weight. And so the prose is actually weighted towards a rhythmic musical style. If you read it aloud, you'll hear it very quickly. So there's the sound of the words. I wish it could be recorded in audio. You'd pick that up very fast. The second thing I was trying to do was because this is a story that challenges assumptions and because you're going to step in it because your assumptions are going to break apart later and you're going to fall in over your head at some point in the series, I wanted to slow your reading down so that you had a chance to pick up the nuance so that certain details would percolate in so that when you, I do endings, when you hit that finale in Curse of the Mistraith, it will impact you harder because those little tiny pieces, you had time to absorb them. The third thing I was striking to do with the style 
besides pulling no punches and using exactly the precise word to give the precise meaning and the precise weight to what I was trying to say, if you look at how people experience time and they experience trauma and they experience impact, when you're engaged very shallowly, time goes very quickly and you just kind of skip along in the surface. When you hit a traumatic moment or you're truly engaged with a piece of material of something that you're doing that you really love or something that you're immersed in, the clock stops. Time literally stretches, it slows down. If you've ever had to react under extreme pressure, like some in the middle of an accident when you're driving and somebody hits somebody next to you, time slows down. It actually gives you time for your reactions to kick in. So part of what I was doing was slowing your brain down just that little bit first so you wouldn't leap over things that were important because all those tiny details don't mean what you think they do until they do. The second thing was when you hit that ending, it will give you an experiential shock. When you finish this book, whether you hate it or love it, you will not forget it. And so the style was designed to slow things down so you really had time to gain that depth of absorption that when the experience hits, it will absolutely immerse you. So it was deliberately set that way. Not all of my books are set that way, but this one, if a reader wasn't prepared and wanted to run through on their assumptions and assume things and skim and hurry up and get it done and hurry up and figure out what happened, it isn't always about what happened. It's also about why it happened and how it happened and all those little details that feed into the decisions matter. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, to be completely honest with you, I think that was pro probably my personal um, reading style when I first picked it up. It was like, I want to know what happens. You're trying to slow me down. Let me get to the, the good stuff. So I would like push through or skim through or move ahead forward because I wanted to see what happened. It's only when I came back later and did the reread and I already knew that I took it slowly and allowed myself to actually experience the book the way you were writing it that all this other stuff started to be like oh <laughs> i didn't see that the first time around because i wasn't allowing myself to um so it did take me that whole um this i guess the switch from what i was used to reading um the way other all the other books that i had been read were presented to me on the page picking up walls of light and shadow that there, there isn't a, for me there was an adjustment period um even to this day when i pick them up it's like okay i need to switch my brain into the rhythm and absorb it otherwise you know, i'm just not my my conscious brain is not meshing with the stuff that the subconscious brain will pick up so that's i think that that's very much um that was very much my first experience first time through mine as well i felt that same thing and after just re i'm not done yet with my reread but i'm almost there <laughs> shocked what i missed just shocked <laughs> been telling Janie. so if we're all good, I think we're good for the spoiler section now. If you have not read Curse of the Mysteries or you haven't finished the book, now is where we depart, unfortunately. So spoilers in three, two, one. What about that ending? Oh, <laughs> oh man. Just, yeah, just wow. reading, it, reading it for the first time blew me away. 
but even with that, like, it's not, I didn't fully understand what I was reading until I jumped into like ships, which we're not going to be talking about. And then, then I became like a huge fan of this series. So um, what was everybody's um, experience like in Revelations, just reading that ending and what, what it would mean to you? I know, Matt, you haven't read any more in the series, but what are you hoping more will come out of it? Sorry, I should say. It was just, oh, I, I mean, words just fail me to describe it. It's just such a beautiful ending. I think one of my pet peeves in fantasy is, and I think it's something that Janet has touched upon, is that kind of war is kind of like, it's, it's almost glorified and there's sort of like, um, a sort of tokenism towards um paying tribute towards like the emotions of war and the trauma but it's kind of like rushed on from generally whereas in in the ending of uh mistrafe i really loved how it kind of like it, it had this build up and then it had this intense war scenes that i mean it's just chaos really and then I could, it was really vivid, the descriptions, I could imagine it and then kind of like sneaking up the path and trying to like outflank the other and, and it just gripped me. And then the last sort of little section where it kind of, I mean, a lot of other books would have kind of just left it at, that, at the end of that, but it didn't end on that. It ended on this beautiful exploration of the, the emotions and the trauma and how these characters are dealing with what happened and, and it's really quite um, dark, actually, and and that ending just really just blew me away. And I'm, I mean, I'm hoping in the future books that because because we didn't really get too much time with some of these characters, apart from sort of the main characters before the end, we didn't truly kind of get to know them in a way that we would have done if if we'd had more time with them. So I'm really looking forward to, I know that later on in the series, we'll get um, more time with these characters, get more emotionally invested in them. And then it's just going to get crazier and more traumatic, I'm sure. And I'm excited to see the consequences of that and see Jani weave her magic in, in exploring that. And particularly, um, I'm looking forward to seeing Arathon's relationship with, oh, I, I've forgotten the name because I've, I've read it, a little while ago now um, but um which one so Halloran? it might it's it's the chief's son the one that is kind of like that's the one yeah, yeah. them two it's kind of like teased at the end that they they're kind of like a little relationship that's getting going i'm looking forward to seeing more of that blossom but yeah yeah, I'm just. Mm, I know what. Wait, has tape over his mouth. <laughs> I can't help. I can't help myself. I'm yeah, I'm. I'm looking at Mark's poker face and Blaze's little smirk there, and I'm like, yeah, no, can't say anything about that. No, I'm gonna I've, have to come back and watch this moment when I when I read the later books. <laughs> oh yeah, there'll be plenty of other stuff you want to talk about as well when you get to some of those later parts. <laughs> um, Mark, why don't you talk about about the ending and the revelations? Um, so the ending for me didn't, the, the first time through, like I said, I wasn't reading it properly. I wasn't, um, immersing myself in the story. I was trying to like, what, you know, give me the thing I want to see what happens and why is it happening and all that sort of stuff. So there was a, <laughs> 
my memory that feels like a long period of time um, where I had the first three books um, before Fugitive Prince. I can't remember the length of time between them, um, but I would reread them. And um, once I had become more used to the um, the rhythm that Jenny was presenting and allowed myself to experience it properly was um, when I um, got the full impact um, on a reread of Curse. And the single most impactful part of Curse of the Mistwraith for me was on the, the um, Council Steps in Atara where the curse takes hold of um, Lysaia. And that switch where you had <laughs> been travelling with these two half-brothers who had started their relationship in enmity and had gotten to know each other and had built a friendship and a relationship. And Arathon can come across as standoffish and quite prickly and people, you know, don't warm to him as um, you see with Dakar. Um, whereas Lysaia is, you know, handsome, blonde, and draws charismatic and draws people to him and is everyone's go-to and favourite guy. Um, and he gets to see through his brother's walls and start understanding him and there's a real relationship and then it just turns. And it turns on Lysaia's part, not so much on Arathon's because of his training and his, um, uh, his mage training. And it was at that point that I was like, this whole story, this is like, it's a tragedy. This whole thing is like, was, it was really impactful for me. And then obviously, you know, rereading and I tweeted to Jani recently when I was rereading um, Curse, the battle, the, um, is it, I'm going to butcher the the actual pronunciation, but Tal Quorum. Okay. Um, Yep, cool. Um, oh, my God, it is gut-wrenching. It's so, so emotional um, that I found myself having to stop. <laughs> like, I'd read it before. I know what happens. But when you get to it and the stuff that goes on and the, the characters who go into it knowing what's coming um, and they do it, they have to – they play their part anyway um, – Jared's father, I've forgotten his name, um, the previous Caithnon. Stephen. Stephen, thank you. Um, but he had seen his death coming um, for years before. Um, and his wife and how Arathon tries to play them to make himself, you know, not someone that they would want to fight for or die for. Um, and then the, the kind of look behind the curtains when they realize what, what he's doing. Um, it's just really, I get emotional just thinking about it, um, really packs a punch. Um, and it's gut-wrenching, really is. Um, and you kind of like, you don't, you kind of left with a bit of an open wound <laughs> at the end of the book that only starts to um, uh, to heal or as, as you move through the story and things go on. But even in the second arc, the second arc is just like, oh, so much that he's going through. Um, you just want to keep moving. 
um, for me anyway, which is why I'm doing this massive reread and it's just um, pushing myself forward. Um, but um, yeah, the the complexity of character um, with what you can see of them as a reader and what you can see them coming to uh, Lycea and Arathon um, individually and then watching that change, particularly at the beginning and certainly in, in Curse and later as we go along um, with Arathon, as the, the Miswraith starts to affect their actions um, and their responses um, is really harrowing to watch. Um, and there's this point um, where it's like, uh, I want to empathize with Lysaia. <laughs> And at the same time, I want to hate him for everything he's doing. Um, so, yeah, that's me. That's <laughs> my journey so far. So, yeah. Oh, how about you? Um, somewhat similar. Uh, like, uh, from what I can remember, my first read of you know that being, you know, quite, almost thirty years now. Um, uh, I yeah, I don't think I was prepared for, you know. Um, to fully grasp a lot of what was there, I, I can remember, um, as as was you know, Jenny's mentioned this, uh, you know, in other interviews in the past. The, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna yeah touch on that you know too, Blaze. Um, uh, that you know the the choice to focus in on Arathon was a deliberate one, because if you were looking at it from a more of an outside standpoint without getting into his head you'd you'd end up falling for you know here's the 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 charismatic you know shiny guy and everything that a lot of what Arathon does looks really shifty from the outside um and and i do uh end up feeling for lizaire and but i've noticed on rereads um especially on this most recent one is just like the stuff, as Mark said, you, when you get to Talcoran and you know the battle there and the coronation day, um, and just watching it all fall apart is just you know, um, harrowing. But you know, it's also it's like you know there is the the interference you know and duplicity of the mist wraith, but just the um, for Lysaer, it's like. You know, it's just looking looking back at things through there, and you you, you realize um, just all the cracks that were there. You know, it's like they had become friends, but there's all these little you know little things, you know, character flaw wise, you know, things from his background that are just all there, and you know, every one of them gets played um, played on by the mist wraith and exacerbated. But um, it, it is an interesting point to realize some of the things that. It, you know, Lysaer does at the end there were things that, yeah, he's been warped and twisted by this, but the potential for him to do those things and just self-justify is there the whole time. And it's, yeah, it's really, really, you know, shocking where he's just like, yeah, no, I, I'm not going to be bothered by this uh, if, you know, I'm going to do this terrible thing and it's all Arthur's fault. And just completely absolve himself of any culpability or you know responsibility for you know the thing he's doing and um and then just 
uh, what's the yeah and then we get to the the battle and that's actually you know uh, kind of frightening too when they come face to face and um, you know the curse just you know over overruns Arathon and he's just uh, you know you know he, he he basically has become the cackling madman that Lazaire portrays him as he's just mocking him dismissively you know uh, uh, um, deriding him and just you know, you know, not at all the character that we've 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 come to know. He's just you know this twisted sorcerer who's you know just like yeah, I'm gonna kill you and all your friends, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's yeah, it's really sad and you know a tragedy. It's such a it's such a tragic like ending and in the back of my mind when I first read it was now they're both affected by this horrible, horrible curse that's, you know, from the prologue that this war lasts 500 years. Can you imagine the emotional toll and strain that's going to put on anybody, let alone someone who's under like this. And it brings up the other question. I know Jenny, you and I have talked about this of free will. Um, how much of this is Lys- is Lysaire being affected by the misrace? How much of this is preconceived inside his mind for, from the hate of what happened with his mother, like uh, and ha- and the mother's relationship with with Arathon betraying him? How much does this bring into account with the the sorcerers, like um, uh, affecting Arathon as as well? I remember reading a scene middle of the book. Um, and how I f- I'm forgetting the name, Isander, and how he was uh, talking with Arathon, him knowing in the back of his mind what he needs to do and the sh- how he needs to convey that to him. But he's almost brought to tears over that. So the concept of free will is one that's going to keep on coming um, book after book after book, and it's always going to change your perception based on the events. Um, Jenny, how did you want this theme of free will to be incorporated into this book and especially um, how the effects happen within the ending of, of curse? That so many ideologies in our frame of reference disregard free will. And there's this concept of you obliterate free will for quote unquote, the greater good and the ramifications of that going forward. What are you actually doing when you trample on free will? And I'm not sure you caught it on your reread of Curse of the Mistwraith, but did you catch that moment in the final battle when Arathon wakes up to what's happening because Jirrit stands between him with the sword and Arathon has to make a choice there. He has two paths he could take. And did you catch that, that choice or did you run over it? The choice he had was, to spare Jarrett, he knew he was going to create the mess of that 500-year war. It was going to happen to him over and over and over again. And there's facets of that that you don't know yet in Curse. So he foresaw he was going to perpetuate the cycle or let Jarrett die, destroy his half-brother and end it right there. Did you catch that moment of truth where he had to choose which side he was going to step into, who he was going to become after that, and the knowing of how much more was coming, depending on that choice. 
it's a very signal moment, but it's probably overlooked by a lot of readers, particularly in a first read. I really liked it, how it was, it was a very unique, I found it, that the way that you used the character traits of, of Arafon to up the tension of what was happening. For So, for example, in that uh, example you just used, it was really tense for me because we know that he has to make that choice and he either has to choose to ignore the deaths and sufferings he's going to cause, which goes against his character or kind of stick with what his his very nature, his very being tells him to be. And that really kind of ups the tension for me in a way. It wasn't just like raising the stakes kind of like physically, but psychologically as well, which was just, it just blew me away. And you can't forget either the um, full impact of the character traits that the Royal Lions have had enhanced. It's mentioned over and over and over again. Uh, the illicit... Uh, if, if, forgive me if I <laughs> mispronounce that with justice. Um, uh, Arathan or the fa the um, his line has got mm, compassion and they yes, yeah, Fallon. They both have. I always look at that S. I don't know. Jenny can tell me is the S silent? I'm not sure. Um, and uh, both of them have got farsight from the Elias royal line. So like all of these things go into play and they get. Um, particularly with Lysaia, his um, it's his trait of justice that is um, is kind of like exasper is exacerbated by the um, the the misrate and it's what is it's using to drive um, and blind him uh, to everything, to the truth of everything. And then you get into the fact that, you know, it's really confronting for people to look at themselves and their actions and to acknowledge, um, damage that they may have caused other people or that they've been blind to, um, even within themselves to themselves. Um, so you get the idea or is presented that, um, anyone who's had mage training, like, um, Arathon has, has to confront those things about themselves, has to be self-aware, has to understand how um, their actions um, impact everything around them. But the day-to-day -day people um, usually don't look that deeply because, you know, it's a little bit confronting and not everybody wants to see that sort of stuff um, in themselves. Um, so, you know, uh, have Deshthier take over um, Lysaia or, you know, um, tweak um, uh, traits, character traits that are there with a, a driving um, uh, coercion to destroy his half-brother um, and, you know, let everything run, run wild. And then unless Lysaia asks, I believe the, the, the concept is whether if he asks for help, the fellowship would step in and would help, but unless if he doesn't ask, they're not going to interfere. They have to let things, the law of the major balance means they have to let things play out. Um, the big warning was warned. It was definitely warned way, way back, chapters ahead of that, when Asan Deer, when Arathon is lamenting that he's stuck with his fate and that he really didn't want to be there and Asandir is rather ruthless, and he says to him, the man would not stand here who did not choose Carthen first. Nail on the head. Free will was at play the entire time. 
I've, I haven't gotten to that particular scene in my reread, Jenny, but I'm just re- remembering when I read it the first time how Arathon has just a brutal choice <laughs> to make um, going against his his morals and 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 who he is as a character or to, uh, to, to end it all right there as a choice he can't. Obviously, we know like he can't he can't make it. Hence, he's doomed to repeat this this endless torture and like um, like emotional and, and mental torture that he's gonna that he's going through, and how it continues. It's just it was just heartbreaking the first time I I read it, and going back back towards it and on a reread and what's going to expect. I feel like it's going to have like exponential emotional impact on myself. So. Well, actually, you passed it in your reread. That scene took place way back with Maynall at the outpost when Asandir stepped out to give Arathon the lecture about what happened to Griffin after the raid in the pass. Yeah, it's so much right. fun. I, I enjoy this because it's so easy to just step over a sentence and not really feel the razor blade that impacted you right there. And it's okay. If readers readers get panicky, they're going to miss something. Trust me, you won't miss anything. The series is going to clobber you from behind. Anything you stepped over blithely in the beginning and you didn't pick it up, it'll catch you later. Can I also just say, I love hearing you pronounce names, <laughs> Jenny, because like you know how you want them pronounced. Asendir, I would always, I always pronounce him as Santa when I'm reading it. So in my head. So yeah, that's cool. yourself. It's no big deal. Oh no, I just like it. I think it's really cool. Can we talk about the Coriani? Oh yes, my god, please. the Coriani. <laughs> I love Moriel Prime. I absolutely love her. I think she is one of the best characters in it. Probably for all the wrong reasons. I like her. But <laughs> but um the Coriani I find to be fascinating where they're a um a faction that ha- has that predates the founding of athera um or humanity on athera um and they um are, are all this charity 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 um but then you see the higher levels once and i just came across a a reflection of um, I'm going to butcher these names. I can't remember. I know them in my head when I read them. Alira, is it? Um, Elaine? I can't remember. Arathon's... Alira. Alira, yeah. Um, in Grand Conspiracy. And she reflects that a sister she's talking to from um, one of the the um, chapter houses is would be shocked at the level of machinations that happen once the um, Koriani um, uh, shed the gray of charitable service um, and move into the administrative um, functions of their order. Um, but you often describe Moriel as um, a spider in the center of her web, which is absolutely perfect for what she is. Um, Love it, love it, love it. I just think it's amazing. And the use of, your description of the use of magic um, for them with their crystals, the quartz crystals and resonance um, 
and the fact that they um, will use sigils that override free will, um, that coerce people or um, like the, the polar opposite to what the fellowship will do. Um, and that they don't acknowledge um, sentience um, in anything other than humanity, um, like uh, nature. Nature. Or, um, yeah. Yeah. Inanimate. Yeah. Inanimate. Yeah. Anything that's inanimate doesn't have sentience. Whereas when you get in the, the chapters with the, um, the fellowship, it's like, no, it totally does. And they're blinding themselves. But then you get the characters um, like Alira, who can see past that stuff within, um, you know, as a Koreani can see um, past that. I actually, I think I would actually dispute that a little. It's like, I don't, I, I don't think that they necessarily don't think that um, like inanimate earth doesn't have sentience. I, I, I think it's more, they just don't care. Yeah, yeah, that hu humanity human humanity it. trumps. Yeah. yeah, trumps them for sure. Um, so <sighs> the Koreani, um, Jani, did it? Did it? Um, oh, I don't know what I want to ask. Um, where did they come from? <laughs> like, why? What? What? Is that a star? Yeah, yeah. I I have. Purchased that the other day. Really, um, you don't want to spoil. Yeah, in the main at the main first book, but um, yeah, they go back a long time. But also, they embody the concept of that we wrestle with here all the time: the human centric view of the world, that the needs of humanity trump everything else, um, even when it overruns things we need for our survival. Needs of humanity trump everything else. The second thing is. What happens? Does absolute power corrupt? Absolutely. Everybody loves to spit out that little proverb. My thought of an, on it is a little different. Absolute power only corrupts absolutely if you're unaware of the effect of it. And so in the case of the Coriathane, yeah, they're, they're pretty much the embodiment of how far does absolute power or what they think of as absolute power corrupt what they're actually thinking they're trying to do. And what you don't realize, and it's spoiler territory, so I'm not going to spoil anything, but as you read through the series, you suddenly are going to see where's this faction coming from and why are they doing what they're doing? And it's not what you think. It is not what you think. Layers, lots of layers. To a head, yeah. Are they truly evil? Are they truly bad? Are they truly? They're seeing what they see at the level at which they're operating, and how much does anybody step past the level at which they're operating unless they get clubbed in the face with a two by four? Who gives up violent power voluntarily? Usually, it gets taken from them. Mm. But does that happen all the way up? The, if you to hit a higher tier of awareness. Power maybe is selflessly given up. So does absolute power corrupt absolutely, or does that rely on the vantage of your awareness and your conscious evolution? Hmm. So yeah, that's read on the page in the beginning of Curse of the Mistraith when Arathon says, Avas Handir from the other side of the door, power on that scale will destroy itself if there's not wisdom. It wasn't those exact words, but that's the encapsulated meaning 
of you hit a certain level of power and you will destroy yourself unless you know what you're doing. Sheer ignorance, you'll trip on it. Yeah, that's um, like I mentioned in the chat, the, you know, Robert Caro, who um, did the biography about Robert Moses, um, the power broker, where he mentions um, and Moses helped design New York City, you know, and it's really fascinating stuff. But he mentions that, you know, in his opinion, it's, you know, power wasn't really in and of itself corrupting, but it was revealing. So if he gave someone power and saw what they did with it, it was very likely that was what they were always going to do. Um, the scale of it might change depending on what kind of power they've got, but, you know, you'd, you'd see what kind of person they were if you gave them power. Yeah, exactly. An interesting take. So how did you feel about the fact that I've always tried in this series, and it's there in Curse of the Mistwraith, that every dark moment has a transcendent follow-up? So this isn't grayscale to black. I tried to use the full spectrum. Well, conversely to when I went through um, reading Malazan, which is just grim and gets darker and darker and darker, through reading the series the first time and even going back to Curse, for every single dark and grueling moment, you you will have like a like a kind of like lighter, uplifting side in one way or another it's not not necessarily done to the equal scale but um it's something i've always appreciated because it can it can be easy just to write something grim and dark and just go down that down that path it's on the converse it's easy to write stuff that's just happy and uplifting and like everyone's happy at the end but that's not what the series is it challenges the emotions of humanity uh the powers of balance of free will of interactions and also with nature and you can't have you can't have your cake and eat it too in this type of in this type of world someone is always going to be looking for power or a way like to gain power in one facet or another so i always appreciated the way you you went into this story and how it just evolved into what it's become and just going back to the original going back to book one just brings all those future aspects uh, to life. Something I've always appreciated. And also the fact that um, Arathon always forgives. Um, and he, he doesn't hold a grudge. And I think that's, that's um, one of the things that relieves, well, at least for me, um, a lot of the tension of like I'm outraged <laughs> by the the actions towards him and the opinions of of um, that that are um, uh, raised or generated, um, and the short sightedness of some people, um, and his personal I guess his 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 mage training that's allowed him to see um, his own character and his own fall, flaws and faults and self-awareness um, and then the compassion of the Cephalon um, royal line you get this release of tension um, of the dark in events 
because while he has his walls up and he's really prickly, um, afterwards you get this, like, well, he doesn't hold anybody's actions against them. Um, he, he doesn't hold the grudges. He doesn't... Um, you may, it may look like that, at first, until you the layers get peeled back a bit, um, especially as you go through um, Dakar's journey with him, and you get to see through Dakar's eyes, um, I find that really, um, really important, really powerful. It's not a revenge story. It's no. not a revenge story at all. No. And the transcendence of the shades after Talcoran. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. From another vantage where you see yeah. it transformed and transmuted so it's it's not making an effort to do catharsis through revenge which is a false front anyway it's just another word for violence violence perpetuating violence um so yeah i wasn't writing a grimdark story it's got more facets to it and so that moment of the transcendence of the shades was supposed to give you a platform in which Later down the line in the series, you're going to see things that are even bigger than that. That it's not a revenge story. Yeah, it's um, as I read the after the you know the whole thing at Top Warren and you know afterwards you know like the line there um, uh, to free the day spirits and reclothe cold flesh and fair flowers, and it's just like after the devastation and everything that happened in you know, tragedy of, you know, Talhorin, and then you have just, you know, as he's going through there, and uh, is it Cowell? I, I'm just never sure how to pronounce yeah. it. And uh, Halloran are, you know, uh, tracking the course of all the people and finding them where they've been tended to and whatnot, and it was just this beautiful moment of catharsis that just, you know, uh, helped, you know, patch over the just like the you know uh, open wound you know sense of what had you just experienced it really kicked my butt when i saw in february that we're actually living a facet of that when that little old lady came out and put the sunflower seeds in the the little ukrainian lady grandmother put the sunflower seeds in the pocket of the russian soldier the whole reclothed the dead in fair flowers, I'm like, whoa, that gave me chills. Yeah, it was just a, it was just a very, very tragic, very hard, <laughs> hard ending to, to, to read. But that's, that's why we, we read fantasy because we want to experience all these emotions and, um, and we want to experience something, uh, that will make a, that will last for many, many years to come. That's definitely what you've accomplished Janie with curse of the mysteries and for the rest of the series as well. I know Matt, you'll get to it eventually. And we eagerly look forward to that. Um, with that, I know we're going a little, little long. I think we will wrap up, but before we do, um, Mark, you are a Epic fantasy author, uh, yourself. I just wanted to give you a few minutes or so to talk about your book, uh, the blood of the spear and also your new no novella, which came out Starbringer, which is absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so um, being a long-time reader of science fiction fantasy, particularly epic fantasy, long-time fan of Janny's, um, have always wanted to write <laughs> fantasy novels since I read my first proper fantasy novel um, 
which was the um, Dragonlance Chronicles. That's how I discovered fantasy. So I didn't go the, the route of um, discovering it through The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Um, it was Dragonlance. Um, so yeah, I um, put out the first book and a novella in the Eye of Eternity series, which, uh, interesting fact, the first time I ever heard that name, the Eye of Eternity, was reading um, Sorcerer's Legacy by Jani. Um, and it captured my imagination. I still remember that line um, where uh, in the, towards the beginning of the book, um, and again, names escape me, but the main character, the female character is taken by the sorcerer and they pass through the eye of eternity. Um, and it has been used by other people since, but that's where I first heard it and came across it. And I was like, that's an amazing thing. Um, and I kind of started building, world building um, around that. So we get to the blood of the spear, which is book one. Um, in the grand tradition of epic fantasy, there's a big back, back um, world-building backstory behind everything that happens. And I have two half-brothers, which are actually not based on Arathon and Lysaia, but could be, at a surface level, um, appear to be. Um, I only realized later. Um, two half-brothers who are, are destined to save the world and kind of don't really want to have anything to do with that, um, with the prophecy or um, that role that they have to play. So there's um, demons and um, ancient wars and ancient magic users and summoners of demons, um, lots of history behind it, um, and Starbinders. I've heard a lot of people, um, I'm a big fan, obviously, of Wheel of Time as well, and lots of people talk about similarities or influence from Wheel of Time in my work. But if you are a fan of Jenny's work, and if you've read Cycle of Fire or um, the Wars of Light and Shadow, you will likely pick up influences from that as well. Um, which I only realized some of them when I was doing recent reread and I was like, oh crap, <laughs> it's very similar. Um, not intentionally, but I think it was just a matter of influence, um, of what impacted me as a reader and what I like. Um, oh crap, you're making me feel old. No, <laughs> you can't feel the same way, don't worry. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yeah, um, the blood of the spear is the beginning of a prophecy um, of the return of the demon queen um, and a um, the return of a line of magic users known as summoners um, to stand against her um, and the prequel novella Starbinder, which uh, came out, uh, which I released a couple of um, two months ago, I think, um, that you can get for free if you sign up with the e-book e edition for free if you sign up to my newsletter on my website, marktimony.com, um, is a loose prequel and a little bit of an introduction to the greater world and one of the characters. Um, and is actually set like 2,500 years before the main story, but um, is still relevant to it. Um, and yeah, so I don't know what else to say about it. I'm really bad. At well, your ears would have been burning before we got started because we were talking about how you start at a very 
feels like a very typical fantasy as you step in on the first page in the first chapter and all of a sudden the bottom gets blown out and the way you snowball that story and that world and everything going on is just really well done. So I highly Thank recommend you. the book. Thank you. I agree with Jenny. We uh, we love a lot of the spear. Can't wait for the sequel. I know you're hard, hard working. I'm working on it. Yep. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, with that, I think we will end this live broadcast. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you all to my author and blogger friends. Jenny, as always, thanks so much again for joining me, talking about your series. And we look forward to the read-alongs coming along in the next few months. Keep, um, keep on the lookout for those. We have more information for that. And until then, cheers, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.